Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We always appreciate the opportunity to speak with our next guest. He has one of the most significant jobs in this country. He's the parliamentary budget officer. He watches over the spending of our money by successive federal governments, and it's not always easy to do. In fact, Mr. Yves Giroux, testifying before the Standing Senate Committee on National Finance in March of this year, said, and I quote, there are mechanisms to prevent inappropriate government expenditures, but there's no guarantee all of these mechanisms are followed. So let's begin with that. Mr. Giroux, good to have you back. How are you? I'm good, thanks. It's a pleasure to be back. How are you? Well, I'm doing just fine. I've given up on beer, though, so let's not. <laughs> I had to throw something. I had to throw something in for our old beer joke. And if you know people, some people are joining us for the first time. They have no idea what what it's about. So too bad for them. That's it. That's it. So <laughs> too bad. Yeah, too bad. You, you weren't here the last time. You just have to listen to some of the uh, the podcasts. When you spoke uh, before the Standing Senate Committee on National Finance in March. And you said there are mechanisms to prevent inappropriate government expenditures, but there's no guarantee all of these mechanisms are followed. Please explain, expand on that for us. Well, uh, it was probably in response to a question from a senator, and I don't remember what was the question because I've appeared a couple of times in front of House and Senate committees since then. Uh, but I meant by that that there are multiple mechanisms to ensure that spending is done appropriately, it's done for the purpose for which it was approved in the first place. So lots of these mechanisms, but there is no absolute certainty that they're always being followed. For example, it's always possible that funding approved for a certain item can be reallocated to other types of expenditures within the same department it's within the preview of Treasury Board, the Treasury Board, the group of ministers to approve reallocations of, of funding. And it's also in, under certain conditions within the preview of senior officials to reallocate funding from one type of envelope for a particular program to other types of expenditures. There's nothing illegal or inherently wrong with that, but it makes the job of parliamentarians very difficult to track spending for example, when they're asked to approve funding of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars for specific expenditures and to have during the year ministers or officials reallocate spending to other priorities. So it's very difficult for parliamentarians, MPs and senators to figure out whether what they approved earlier in the year was indeed used for the purpose for which it was intended. So that's essentially what I was referring to in that in that comment. Okay. Now, we're talking massive amounts of money at times, as you said, uh, millions, billions of dollars. And if reallocation of funding is going to be taking place after it's been announced or after it's been agreed or after it's been said, that's going to be allocated to one particular area and then it's moved around. Is there any mechanism that requires a government agency a department, uh, the um, you know the the group of ministers you mentioned, mm -hmm. is is it incumbent on them to inform what they're doing, the reallocation that's taking place? Yeah, well, it's it is incumbent upon them to do that, but I don't think they have any obligations to do that the moment they make the decision. 
um, they make the, these changes known when they table the public accounts, when the government tables its public accounts to explain to Canadians and parliamentarians how much it has spent in specific areas, in aggregate, but also by line item in each of the departments and agencies that are within its purview, that form this big entity that is the government of Canada. So it can be, it is usually months after the fact that we know these types of reallocations or changes, or sometimes uh, the lack of expenditures. The government may well allocate 100 million for a particular initiative and never spend the totality of these amounts. So it, it happens quite regularly, which we call lapsing funds. And we know most of the time, we know just at the tabling of the public accounts, which for the year that ended in March 2021, so over a year ago, we found out in December what happened for the year, the financial fiscal year 2020-21 that ended in March. So we found out almost nine months later what happened with public spending because mm. the government took its time to release the public accounts. Yeah, so they have a lot of cover they build in for themselves. I'm sure CRA would be very happy if I did the same thing. I'm sure. I'm sure they wouldn't mind because they would charge your interest and you'd have to to pay and pay some interest and probably some penalties. So I'm sure they wouldn't mind. Well, I'm, I'm sure there'd be a red flag beside my name on the uh, on the uh, community laptop at CRA. <laughs> probably, maybe more than one. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, when we were between budgets, I remember you and I had uh, several conversations when it was two years between federal budgets. And there was concern of the time that you expressed about government spending without uh, accounting. So billions of dollars are being spent every week, and nobody essentially is being told where the money is going. I've always wanted to ask you, is that something that just happens uh, regularly, whether or not there's a budget, whether or not there's a majority minority government, that governments just spend money without, without, without informing where it's going? It's very rare. In fact, when this happened, the government said it was because it, there was a pandemic and there was too much uncertainty to table a budget. But uh, so it, it, that was the first time it happened in a very, very long time, as far as I can remember. In fact, I don't think in my career I've seen that. And using the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty, which prevents the government from tabling a budget, was, uh, I thought, and I still think it's a non-argument, because it's not because there's uncertainty that you should not table a budget. There's always a level of uncertainty, and there was uncertainty this year with the war in Ukraine, which did not prevent the government from tabling a budget. A budget is a very good vehicle, among other things, to tell Canadians what the plan is in terms of spending. And of course, things change after the tabling of a budget throughout the year. That's why the government has immense flexibility to introduce new measures, cancel measures that were announced in the budget and so on to respond to these uh, to this changing environment. So the fact the government said, oh, it's too uncertain and we don't want to table the budget. We can't table the budget because of the fluid and uncertain environment. That was not a good argument. And no. the fact no, of the matter is they tabled the budget during the pandemic um, in 2021. There was a budget and yeah. even if it was uncertain or a financial and economic update and there was still a budget this year despite the fact that the pandemic is not over or was not over in April. 
Yeah, and all the G20 nations did not miss one budget. Uh, when we look at the, you mentioned the 2021 budget just now. You, at the time that budget was released, had concerns that the budget overestimated the impact of announced stimulus measures, the impact they would have on the Canadian economy. How's that turned out? Um, it's turned out that uh, we we were concerned, as you say, that the government was overestimated the overestimating the impact on jobs and economic activity. We still we're still of that view, but uh, it's it's a bit difficult to track down exactly what happened uh, because of the fact that the public accounts were tabled late, and since then there has been more government spending and more initiatives announced. So it's very difficult to track down overall what were the impacts of the budget 2021 measures. Let me ask you then about uh, in March of this year, you expressed the view, and I hope I have this correctly, that the federal carbon pricing that's in place now is going to result in a net loss for most Canadian households. Do I have that correctly? Yeah, and I would say it's not a view. It's based on the numbers. It's based on facts. So, But, but you've got that right. Explain we, to us, please. Yeah. So we looked previously, we looked at the, the cost or the net cost or, or the net benefit of households by income quintile. So by, uh, by tranches of revenues, 20% in each increment. So the bottom 20% and up, up to the 20, the 20, the top 20% of income earners, whether they would be better off or worse off paying the carbon tax taking into consideration the rebate that the government is providing to, to Canadians that are in the provinces under the backstop regime. And just looking at the carbon tax paid and the rebate provided to uh, households, we found that the vast majority of households were better off. However, that did not include the impacts on the broader economy of, of a slowing or a slightly lower GDP that would have on on households. So we decided to, now that our models are in our simulations are more refined, we decided to also include that impact in the mix. And we find that when once you consider the economic impact, so that means the slight reduction in employment in some sectors, the slight reduction uh, in investment income in other sectors, Altogether, that means that for the vast majority of households, the carbon tax will result in a net loss. It depends on the household income, of course, and it depends on the province. But virtually all income groups are worse off, except those at the bottom end of the income scale in in, uh, the four provinces that are in the federal backstop regime, i.e. those where the federal carbon tax apply. So that's a combination of the carbon tax, the rebates provided by the government, and the economic impact. And it's it's um, it's one way of understanding the economic impact is, for example, if you're working in a transportation sector, well, because of the transportation sector and being faced with higher costs due to the carbon tax, it's likely to result in slightly lower employment in that sector compared to a scenario where there would not be a carbon tax. And if you're an investor, the returns on investment, so the amounts of money that your investment generates, is likely to be slightly lower in these sectors, resulting in losses of employment income, 
investment income and overall slightly lower economic growth than compared to a situation where there would not be a carbon tax. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, you've also, uh, this has been reported on quite a bit. You've uh, spoken about the costs associated with the federal government's changes to the Official Languages Act. At different times in our history, that particular piece of legislation has been a, a lightning rod for conversation across and debate across the country. What's the report? What, what are you saying about the changes? What, what's, what's happening? So we, we looked at the um, potential costs of a bill that's currently being debated in the House C-13, which would expand official languages obligations to some businesses, private sector businesses, in a couple of regions of the country, New Brunswick, Eastern Ontario, and other regions where there is a significant francophone presence, mostly, if I'm not mistaken, in Northern Ontario. And we find that most of these costs would be related to training for managers who'd have to support or supervise rather employees that are themselves either francophones or bilingual. And because because the uh, legislation would pay, would put uh, obligations on managers to be able to supervise employees in the language of their choice, um, there would be a need to train these managers, supervisors, so that they have a capacity, uh, a reasonable capacity to supervise their employees in either language, in, in English or French. And we found that there would be one-time costs of about $240 million and ongoing costs of about $20 million per year to ensure that the, the language proficiency of new recruits and existing managers are maintained. There would be also some training for employees, even though in these regions there's um, enough employees that are bilingual to meet the needs, but there could be a mismatch between specific employees and the needs of employers. So it would take into that, that funding takes into consideration the cost of training employees, but mostly managers to ensure that they are bilingual. Okay, and uh, I, I have time for this question. What's the impact going to be of the federal government's planned luxury tax for vehicles, aircraft, and boats? So the government plans on taxing expensive cars, uh, expensive boats, and aircraft for use for personal businesses or personal purposes. And we estimate the revenue impact of this measure to be about $780 million over five years. And it's mostly derived from the sale of expensive cars. So I hope you bought yours before the tax comes into into force. But we also found that there, it would be accompanied by a reduction in sales of about $2.9 billion over the same five-year period. So a decline in sales, and it's mostly um, boats, vessels, that would be affected, strangely enough, based on the elasticity or the sensitivity of these types of uh, purchases to uh, an additional tax. Okay. I wanted to ask you what other issues keep you awake at night, but unfortunately, unless you can do it in 20 seconds, we're out of time. Um, uh, there's too much to keep me awake at night, but I take uh, I take very good solace in knowing that there are informed Canadians like you and your listeners that are worried about these issues. So I, I'm not losing too much sleep at night. The pain at the pump is what we're all feeling now. I, I talk to so many people who tell me I drive less, and that really is what the government wants. They want you to drive less. 
I drive less because it costs so much. But then when we add just inflationary pressure on everything else that we purchase, wherever we are, and we look at the interest rates of the banks and the Bank of Canada and the central banks are now um, continuing to, uh, to to press on on, on populations. It becomes an extremely difficult time, and it becomes an uncertain time economically. We'll get into that uh, tomorrow. But we've said, and I've said this so many times, you're probably tired of hearing it, but I've said Europe is the canary in the proverbial coal mine when it comes to energy. What's happening in Europe now sort of presages what may very well happen here. And uh, my guest and I were communicating on this by way of email earlier in the week, and he wrote, sent me an email saying that G- G7 leaders, remember this, right, signed a declaration to end fossil fuel subsidies. They did that just a few weeks ago. So now what's happening? France and Germany are doing what? They're providing subsidies to motorists. Why? Well, let's ask our guest about that. Thierry Bro is a professor at Sciences Po in Paris, oil and gas expert at the French Energy Ministry, where he was in charge of security of energy or security of supply. He's a leading expert on markets, geopolitics of oil and gas, and a regular contributor to Natural Gas World website. Thierry, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's good to talk to you again. Good afternoon, Roy. Thank you for inviting me. So let's talk about what's going on. Governments, and this is probably be fairly unanimous response from listeners, don't seem to have a handle on reality. So we have the G7 signing a declaration to end fossil fuel subsidies just weeks ago, as you pointed out in your email to me earlier in the week. But now we have France and Germany cutting gasoline and diesel taxes for motorists, which selfish, well, selfishly, realistically, I approve of, but which is a subsidy, isn't it? So are they, they're just going against what they said they would do. Yes, absolutely. I think, uh, first of all, we have to remember that we are not uh, in this worst energy crisis just by uh, a mystery. It's because we engineered ourselves. I mean, remember, we were saying, I mean, the government, the International Energy Agency was saying we shouldn't invest so much in oil and gas. And so, therefore, supply isn't there, demand is recovering, and so, therefore, prices are extremely high. Uh, war in Ukraine didn't change this picture so much, but war in Ukraine gives us, I would say, some new thinking. And I think here we have two options. The first one is to say, well, uh, we have a war in Ukraine. We should try to limit the amount of money we send to Vladimir Putin. And so therefore, we should say to our people, energy is, is expensive in Europe. And so therefore, yes, please drive less, but we will keep high prices. But this is not what we are doing. And you may be right. This is also what may happen in, on your side of the pond. Uh, in front of this risk of social unrest, governments have come out with a cap on the, my gas bill uh, that come with uh, discount at the at the pump, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which means that people will continue uh, to drive as much. So, in fact, governments are talking about energy transition, but are doing everything wrong uh, to achieve this energy transition. So, they all governments across around the world, including Mr. Trudeau's government here in Canada, continuously lecture us to be green. Then they allow taxes to rise or introduce new energy taxes, making life for people massively difficult. And you and I communicated on this. Governments, some, many, all, I don't know, don't seem to care about the pain people are suffering. 
and uh, and so what they did then do is they contradict themselves and they provide these subsidies to to motorists. So what what exactly is happening? I know in Germany they reduced the taxes on on gasoline by I think thirty cents a liter, diesel thirteen cents if I have that correctly. What is happening in France? How is France French government responding? So we have a discount on our uh, petrol at the pump. It's 18 uh, cents uh, per liter less, but we still have record high prices uh, at uh, for, for diesel and uh, petrol at the pump. Uh, we have a cap on our gas bill and we have a cap on our electricity. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, this is just magic mass because at the end of the day, somebody pays. I mean, we've moved into markets because we wanted the price to reflect supply and demand. So at the end of the day, it's not me as a consumer. It's me as a taxpayer that pays this at the end of the day. And again, uh, the thing is, uh, why should they lecture us on being green and not use this, I would quote, unquote, opportunity of the war in Ukraine to try to unleash propaganda and to say to the people, yes, we now need to make some major step into this energy transition, you need to consume less. But if you do this uh, just ahead of an election, you're going to lose the election. And this, so this is why they are dead afraid. I mean, we've seen this with the IEA stating you should put uh, implement a limit on motorway, 110 kilometers per hour. Uh, the European Commission says, stated that's a very good idea and says, member states, France, Germany, please do this. I remind you, there is no limit on German motorway. And, and, and so therefore, we have not the option and the solution to this energy crisis. And unfortunately, I think we are going to see a very, very, very difficult winter with huge blackouts in Europe, even if our president stated exactly the opposite back a few days ago. So it's do as I say, not do as I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. But this is going to... Uh, uh, end up in misery in, in this case. We are, we are going to face blackouts. We are going to face a recession. I mean, we are very close to it. And uh, we are facing huge inflationary risks. And uh, you're also there. And, and I think at the end of the day, I mean, we need more oil and gas. We need more oil and gas coming from Canada uh, because we don't uh, produce it ourselves. But we should be able to produce a little bit more uh, because we need also to fight Russia. And this is also on top. This is why I'm saying the energy transition is in fact something that uh, we thought of, but it's long term. The short term right now, as you said in your program, is people are, are being killed in Ukraine and the, the, the border is moved west as we are talking. Yeah. So 10 years ago, I think, approximately, Canada was seen to be, globally, seen to be uh, a major exporter of natural gas and oil. That was the expectation, that we would supply much of the uh, oil and natural gas the world needed, wanted, and wanted from a responsible um, business partner. Now, since Mr. Trudeau became prime minister, that has largely been pushed to the side, or any new developments, pipelines essentially by the by majority, uh, are, are, not a, are, are just not happening. Natural gas is not being developed as it should, with the province of Quebec saying they won't be doing any more exploration for natural gas. There would be such a welcoming market, would there not? I mean, you just said that. There would be a welcoming market in Europe for any energy, gas or oil, that Canada would export to the EU. Yes? Absolutely. And, and again, 
uh, as you rightly said, responsible production is important. And we know that in North America, people are producing it in a responsible way. And, and, and so it's, this is why I'm always very cross when I'm hearing people telling me, well, we don't want this to be produced in Europe, but we are okay having it produced in Venezuela or in Russia. I mean, at the end of the day, let's try to uh, help uh, ourselves with the democratic regime and not with the others. Thierry, uh, it's, it's frightening, it's alarming, it, it's, it's what people don't want to hear. And, and that's when you've said, and you've said it several times, that you're expecting blackouts and a very severe winter in Europe because of a lack of supply of natural gas and oil, I suspect. Please put that into perspective. What are you expecting? Yes, Roy. I mean, what we've seen, first of all, is that Russian gas, which was providing 40% of uh, European demand, has been reduced because Vladimir Putin decided to cut some countries off. And so, therefore, Russian gas already today does only represent 25%. So, the cut in Russian gas has been 40%, 4-0, versus what it used to be uh, prior to COVID. So, a massive cut. And this was managed by the market. So, Markets was, uh, was in a position to reroute cargoes of U.S. LNG mostly and to allow this U.S. LNG to come and to balance the system. So we are okay right now. But two things are coming. First of all, we have an embargo on uh, coal from Russia coming in August. And Russian coal is very good. So it's going to be difficult to replace it because the quality is uh, not, uh, could, you can't find the same good quality all over the place overnight. And then at the end of, uh, of, of the year, we are going to have this Russian uh, embargo on uh, petrol. And so uh, and if we assume uh, that Vladimir Putin uh, could uh, cut further countries, what we are going is at the end of this year, we are going to have no Russian coal, no uh, Russian oil and way less of Russian gas. And so and please remember Vladimir Putin is much more powerful on the 1st of January than on the 1st of June in terms of energy. And so I think that uh, there isn't enough uh, oil and gas available around to do this. And so therefore, he may use this. And even if he doesn't, uh, we are going to pay extreme high prices because we know some of this Russian gas is not replaceable. As I said, 40% has been replaced by the market. Another uh, 40% uh, could be replaced, but the last few percent, the last 20%, 30% cannot be replaced. And so therefore, uh, we, we, if, if he cuts completely, we are in blackouts. And even if he doesn't cut completely, we are in a very difficult position because we didn't plan this ahead. Yeah, blackouts in winter. Wow. Um, so, again, when we were exchanging emails, you used the phrase incoherent policies, and I started to think about Germany right away. Here's Germany facing an energy crisis, and what are they doing? They're closing down their nuclear plants. You and I have talked about that. But at the same time, they have now allowed a Dutch company to begin drilling for natural gas offshore. It, it just doesn't make any sense what, what, they're, they, what they're doing or what they're saying. There, there doesn't seem to be a coherent plan to move forward. And if you're going to have trouble this winter, given the circumstances now, What's waiting the following winter? What's, what's waiting for, for, for all of us? 
Well, I think, uh, as you said, it's incoherent because uh, they don't take into account reality. But once uh, they will face blackouts and they will face uh, voters' revolt, uh, they will have to face reality. And so uh, we will go back to a real world. I mean, we will start to rethink about uh, are we going to produce gas in the Netherlands, for example? Are we going to stop talking about hydrogen. I'm, I'm mad every time people are telling me, uh, well, we can get away from Russian gas overnight and have hydrogen instead. Hydrogen doesn't exist as uh, a fuel vector today. It's, it's, it's a chemical produced, uh, produced and a product uh, used in refineries. So I think we need, and, and, and I think this is what's going to happen. Uh, once you have a very difficult winter, government will turn more realistic. Again, look at Germany. Uh, they were against paying for an army. Now they are putting money uh, for their military because they understand that without military, they are going to get very, very weak. Yeah. But, but you can't change the situation overnight. So if, if there's going to be waiting and inaction, inactivity, until the blackouts happen, it's not something that can be corrected even if governments say, oh, yeah, now we understand we have to do what's appropriate and responsible for our citizens. It's not something that can be changed overnight. No, and this is why I, I stated uh, we engineered ourselves this energy crisis, and this energy crisis is unfortunately going to last longer than any other energy crisis because uh, uh, people, uh, companies, uh, don't want to invest too much in upstream because there were lectures not to invest in upstream, and OPEC, is enjoying a huge rent right now. So why would they invest in uh, in upstream also? Remember, in oil and gas industry, and, and you're coming from an oil and gas producing country, uh, when people are, were investing upstream, it was the consumers at the end of the day, back two or three years after, that was benefiting for lower prices. I mean, this is unfortunately not going to happen. I mean, Canada, I don't think, is going to pour billions in upstream in oil and gas. And so, therefore, consumers, the Canadian consumers or the French, the Germans, aren't going to benefit from lower prices in two to three years. This energy crisis is going to last for at least five years. The trial of Aidan Coben, the Dutch man charged with extortion, child luring, criminal harassment and child pornography in the case of the suicide of Port Coquitlam teenager Amanda Todd, is underway in Vancouver. The British Columbia Supreme Court struck down a publication ban which exists on cases involving child pornography after Amanda's mother, Carol Todd, brought forward a constitutional challenge. I've known Carol for quite a few years. She's been on the air with us um, many times as we've talked about uh, the safety of teenagers, uh, young people, kids, and, uh, and, and really being aware of what's going on online. We're going to talk to Carol now, but I want to make this clear. Because the trial is underway, we will not discuss, speak to, or question goings-on in the courtroom. Nor will we speculate about guilt or innocence of the charged individual. He's protected by Canadian law. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And we may not, by law, discuss, speculate on goings-on in the courtroom. So we will not do that. But, Carol, it's uh, good to speak with you again. How are you? Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm okay. <laughs> it, it was a long week. Lots of information, lots of technical information. Um, bringing, bringing my memories back to 
Amanda when she was alive and then her death, of course. Um, so it's been, it's been kind of, I'm okay, but it's been challenging emotionally. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't imagine uh, just how much stress there is for you and has been for you over the years. Um, but I know you've been very committed and continue to be committed, and you do that on uh, Amanda Todd Legacy. Is it .org or .com? Which one? .org. I always forget. I'm never good at .org, .com, <laughs> .ca. It's just, can't we just have one? Well, um, well you know, if, if, if you had been sitting in on the trial in the first week and you know, understanding, they're explaining the technicalities of the basics of the internet. Um, it would it would definitely fill your brain because there's the internet seemingly seems simple, but it's very intricate. Yeah, okay. yeah. We we uh, we spoke with Ortea Parsons' parents. You were part of the conversation. And we've had many conversations about the internet and uh, social media and the familiarity kids have with that, much more so than their parents or their grandparents. They grow up with it. It's part of their their daily lives. And you have always made the case, and I'd like you to speak to that generically because we cannot speak about what's going on in the courtroom, but generically, what do you say about the issue of social media sites that are available to kids. Uh, one California family is suing uh, Meta and um, and uh, one of the social media sites because their daughter committed suicide. But what do you have to say to people? What do they need to know, Carol, about the challenges and, frankly, the dangers of that, that can be there on social media? Well, I'd like to speak to... Like when we talk about the internet and technology and what our children and young people do, um, I mean, this is part of their life. It, it, this all started happening to Amanda in 2009. We're now in 2022, right? And we've seen, we've continued to see technology and social media evolve. And so the premise of saying keep your children um, offline is difficult because even in the educational system, we use technology for learning, right? And and mostly for me as an educator in the field, um, it's about teaching children um, and young people how to use um, technology appropriately. And so we call it digital citizenship, digital literacy. Just like, you know, in the real world with citizenship, Without technology, we hope to teach our children how to behave respectfully, um, how to treat others respectfully, how to, how to be um, appropriate with your manners, and then add the word digital in front of it. And the same guidelines, rules, conversations need to occur, just you, have, you can transfer it to the world of um, using the Internet. So it's, it's really important that we have these conversations with our young people and our children um, because, because it's ever-present. And, you know, when we teach our kids and we talk to our kids about where to go online, what to say online, we have to talk about personal safety and, and privacy measures. And we know listening to Amanda's story, we've learned 
more on how to have those conversations with our kids. Um, it, what happens with technology is the algorithms embedded in it um, encourage a person, it could be an adult too, adult, young person, to keep on scrolling, right? And, and to look at the next video, to look at the next post, to look at the next ad. And, and that's what leads to uh, what we call now like our screen time addictions per se. But we have to learn about how to regulate ourselves and to say, okay, this is enough. I need to turn it off. Or for a parent to say to a child, okay, this is enough. You have to go to sleep or, you know, go do something else not related to technology. Unfortunately, now we have to teach it and have conversations around it. But it's ever so important to have those conversations because it, so easy to get sucked into the vacuum of continuing to scroll, continuing to jump from one app to another, like we talk about Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, um, and beyond, Facebook and beyond. Um, they're out there and, and it's, they're meant to keep us watching and, and looking. Um, so that's why the conversations are, are so important to have. Plus, Social media platforms continue to evolve. The, some of the ones that were around 12 years ago when Amanda was alive aren't around anymore. Um, so it, it's not about, you know, finding out all the intricacies of one application. It's about generally learning about what they all might do. There's, there's apps for um, sharing files. There's apps for storing pictures. There's apps for communicating and for chatting and, and playing games, and, and there's so much out there. But it's our job, uh, I think, as adults and caring humans to learn about those so that we can talk to um, our loved ones and and maybe not, maybe loved ones and their friends, right? You have this big discussion to find out what kids are doing. Yeah. And I know it's the in the interest of uh, information and uh, really... Well, I, I shouldn't say I know. Let me ask you this. Am I correct if I say that one of the reasons that you uh, specifically challenged constitutionally the publication ban, which existed concerning any case involving a victim of child pornography in British Columbia and the B.C. Supreme Court, struck down the ban, you and media organizations, what was just educating people and and, and bringing people into the conversation one of the key reasons you decided this? Well, I truly believe in publication bans in that it protects the individuals that are involved in in, in a crime. They're, you know, a victim of crime. But in Amanda's case, and I'm speaking for myself within my family, um, Amanda's story went viral the, the evening of her death, right? Um, and then proceeded to after that with with many, you know, it caught. It caught people's attention, maybe because the story hit close to home, maybe because, you know, she was a young person that was victimized. Um, it brought up the topic of sextortion and exploitation um, across Canada and, and globally. And it's a conversation, it's a topic that hadn't been talked about a whole lot. And so you can find pieces of Amanda's story everywhere. Professional golf is in a very interesting place. There is the new LIV or Live Golf Tour, and it's Live versus PGA. 
Masters champion Dustin Johnson as Sergio Garcia, and Bryson DeChambeau announced their commitment to the Live Tour. They're playing one right now. But they also expect to play in the majors on the PGA Tour. The PGA says, nope, not going to happen. So what's going to be the upshot of this? Will it go to court? And if so, what will the arguments be? And there's another major sports story. Deshaun Watson's murky past in Houston introduces new questions, as now 66 women are speaking about encounters with the former Houston Texans quarterback as he sought massages while uh, playing for that team. And uh, there are 24 civil suits against him, and I understand the 24th is really significant. I don't know much about that one, but I've read a little bit about it. So what are the options for the NFL with Watson? He's not facing criminal charges, and he just signed a $230 million guaranteed money contract with the Cleveland Browns. Does the NFL suspend him? Can they afford to let him play? Do the Browns have a possible out of their contract with Deshaun Watson? Should they choose to try to exercise something like that? Daniel Lust is a sports lawyer and professor at New York Law School. Dan, good to speak with you again. What are the fundamentals of the situation between Liv and PGA? Uh, Roy, let's just say it's a fascinating and unprecedented one. I think where we should start the conversation First and foremost, unlike our major professional sports, um, you know, uh, be it even the CFL, right, that has a uh, players' union. There's a recent labor strike that's been in the news over there. Um, all of our four major sports, from the NHL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and the NBA, all have some form of a union. So that is to say you have a pretty traditional employer-employee relationship, uh, whereas the PGA Tour, golfers are what we call independent contractors, similar to like a painter or a plumber they're in theory supposed to be able to work for a number of employers. So in theory, right, they are, they don't really, you know, not really bound by the PGA. So um, I guess that's step one, right? As a PGA tours, they're not an employer. They're not a singular employer. They're, uh, you know, these golfers are in theory allowed to have some mobility. They can't be blocked from joining another employer. So that was, I guess, step one that us lawyers were looking for, how the PGA would react. And what we've seen, Roy, is that the PGA is, seems inclined to suspend them from now re-entering the PGA, not blocking them from joining LIV, um, but just saying, hey, you've made a decision, you can't pick both. That seems to be okay in the way of the law. We're not going to see an antitrust lawsuit just yet, um, but let's see how the PGA reacts. Uh, and I will say, Roy, maybe your listeners, not everybody knows this, but the majors, right, the, the Masters, the U.S. Open, yep. the British Open, those are not controlled by the PGA, so these live golfers, Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, um, they intend, at least as of today, to play and live up until the majors and then to go play the majors with the rest of the PGA Tour golfers. So they're not going to be seen in, as being in like live exile. They're intending to get paid their tens, if not hundreds of millions uh, playing live and then also playing the majors. So um, we'll see. We'll see if how that, how that goes if these other independent entities want to try to block them for whatever reason. Yeah, I know. I get the independent contractor part, and but there's always been something uh, about golf that seemed, I don't know, maybe a little more, I don't want to use the word pure, but as far as earning your money is concerned, it seemed to be. So if you don't make the cut for the weekend, you don't get paid. At least you don't get paid for the golf. You get paid on very outside activities if you couldn't have a name and you get sponsorships. But it's always seemed to me that you get it's, it's a meritocracy. You get paid if you play well. But I also understand if I were a player 
and I could go somewhere else as an independent contractor and make millions more to play there on their league and then come back to the PGA, I'd be arguing, hey, I have the right to do both. And I would, Dan, I would probably take it to court, but then the writer in this one is the record, the human rights abuses of Saudi Arabia. That plays into the picture as well, I think. You know, it certainly does. And I, and I think, you know, I've watched this pretty closely. And, Roy, you know my background in, in sports PR. Yes. Um, all of these live golfers had a lot of media training for the last couple of weeks and months, however long they've been kind of floating in the background. You know, I think it's obvious to everyone that the reason they're making this switch is because of the, you know, $100 million guarantee that they're getting, right? Phil Mickelson, it's been reported that he's getting $200 million. And I heard about a number that Tiger Woods, had he joined this entity, would have gotten a number close to a billion dollars, whether you want to believe that or not. But, you know, at a, at a certain point, um, you know, these, these golfers are being asked that question over and over, and they're just saying, well, you know, I'm just, I just want to have an opportunity to golf. Um, they're, they're going to have to answer those hard questions, and that's a decision that uh, they've certainly made. It's a decision that Jay Monaghan um, of the PGA Tour called them out for making, just t- taking the money grab. You know, certainly they're entitled to it. Saudi Arabia has, has also involvement with uh, the WWE. They've had involvement with uh, Formula One racing. Um, and I think that's part of an initiative, uh, if anybody wants to Google it, I think it's called like the 2030 initiative. They're putting money into these kind of worldwide endeavors. So it's not the first time this is going to pop up in sports, and I'm, I'm sure we'll see it again. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how a guy like Phil Mickelson, yeah. I, I don't want to leave this point, though, that Phil, um, you know, interestingly, was not one of the golfers that actually retired from the PGA Tour. So I think the PGA still maintains the ability to fine uh, and actually monetarily punish Phil Mickelson. And that might be the legal battle. It might be still challenging their jurisdiction to find him. And that, at least my prediction, it's probably like a plus 400 prediction if you're a betting person. But uh, I think Phil is going to be the one to sue the PGA or vice versa. I, I think that's where the first battle is going to be fought. That would be fascinating to watch how this develops. Now, now Dan, and by the way, folks, you can uh, follow Dan on Twitter at SportsLawLust. At SportsLawLust is where you can follow Dan Lust, sports lawyer, on Twitter. The Deshaun Watson case, 66 women now stepping forward, speaking of encounters with Watson during massage therapy appointments. He's not facing criminal charges, but he is facing now 24 civil suits. And there are also questions, Dan, about whether Watson was fully upfront with the Browns before he signed that fully guaranteed $230 million contract. Where do you see this going? The other question, too, is whether the, the Texans were up front with the NFL. Um, I guess the, the biggest update this past week, Roy, has been the uh, allegation from the New York Times, uh, you know, the publication in my home state of New York, uh, that the Texans had been providing Deshaun Watson with a non-disclosure agreement uh, that he had been using it in a number of massages. So that tells you that the Texans at least were aware, uh, at least of some seemingly misconduct, some type of um, you know, malicious activity. So... Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things here. The Texans are going to be, at least according to the attorney involved, they're going to be sued in this case for their inability or maybe their, their involvement in these massages. We're not really sure exactly what they did, but he said he's going to do that. The question then is going to be if the Texans will face some type of NFL discipline for being involved in this in some way, shape, or form. You know, I think the Deshaun Watson suspension, a decision will be made one way or the other, I think, by the end of the summer. That's what we've been hearing. Um and then really the interesting one uh, is the one you alluded to, right? The, the Browns are, were clear that they did their due diligence before they agreed to give Deshaun Watson $230 million. But as we sit here today, what we know, right, 60, I think it's 66, 67 different masseuses over a 17-month period, some really messy allegations, 
um, you know, that the Texans might have known ahead of time. I'd be very surprised that the Browns knew all of this when they gave over that $230 million. I would find it very odd that if they knew exactly what we knew today, that they would have paid that amount of money. Um, so that tells you that either, you know, the Browns are very risk tolerant or the Browns didn't properly do their due diligence. Um, and that's going to be a very important decision because there is certainly a, a potential for the Browns if Watson gets some very long suspension and maybe, you know, faces some renewed criminal charges from some of these newer allegations, they could try to avoid that contract. That's an interesting battle, a legal battle, looming one that I'm watching. Um, but it's going to come very close down to what Watson disclosed and what the Browns were possible of finding out ahead of time, even if Watson didn't disclose it. So we'll see. I think a lot of eyebrows were raised when the Browns gave up $230 million guaranteed, which is not a contract that Pat Mahomes gets, Josh Allen gets, Aaron Rodgers, any of the greats, Tom Brady. Um, but, but Deshaun Watson did. So, yeah, we're watching that very closely. So suspension is probably next. Uh, and then it's to see uh, how the Browns want to react to that. They want to try to get some of their money back. And 30 seconds, uh, last one for you, uh, Dan, Baker Mayfield. What happens with him? He's a very expensive insurance policy. I think he's getting just uh, just north of uh, $10 million. I think they're holding on to him just in case he gets a year-long suspension. So we'll see. I, I think uh, nobody really wanted him at the NFL draft. So I think they're going to hold on to him and see what happens with Watson. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.